Hey, welcome to the Transform Your Workplace podcast. I'm your host, Brandon Laws, and it's great to have you on today's episode. Thanks for listening and thanks for the download. Today's interview is with Jennifer Goldman Wetzler. She's a PhD and author of the brand new book out today, February 25th. It's called Optimal Outcomes, Free Yourself from Conflict at Work, at Home, and in Life. And I love content related to conflict management. I think it bleeds over into the work, home, and all walks of life. Nobody's perfect, so we all engage in conflict one way or another, whether we're avoiding it altogether or we find ourselves in this conflict loop, as Jennifer states in her book. But she helps us get out of that conflict loop, and she gives us tons of tools and resources and ideas for breaking that conflict loop and finding the optimal outcome and the ideal future. So you're going to get a lot out of this podcast. Pay attention towards the end because she points you to free assessments that she has on her website that could be helpful for your teams or people at home, anything like that. So enjoy today's episode. Please go over to Apple Podcasts and give us a written review or just click the five stars. That would be amazing too. We've been booking some amazing guests and it's all thanks to the reviews. So continue to do that. I also love hearing from you. So reach out to me on LinkedIn, Instagram, direct messages, whatever. Just send smoke signals. I don't really care. I just love hearing from guests and hearing what's important to you because it really does help shape the content for the future. So thank you so much for the support. We'll talk to you next week. Hey, Jen, it's great to have you on the podcast. Great to be with you, Brandon. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, so you have a book out today, Optimal Outcomes, Free Yourself from Conflict at Work, at Home, and in Life. Oh, conflict. Why are we having so much conflict? I mean, you're a conflict mm. expert, but yet you've had conflict throughout your <laughs> life too. Yes. You start your book by talking about breaking free of a conflict loop you have with your mother. Talk about that. Well, none of us are immune, <laughs> right? So just because you teach conflict for a living or teach people how to deal with conflict. I don't teach conflict, but I teach people how to deal with it. Doesn't mean that it doesn't crop up in our own lives. And so mm -hmm. the story that I tell in the book is about my mom and me, very classic. It turns out, you know, I had always kind of not been very proud of the fact that my mom and I had these fights that really became explosive. And once I started talking about it, first with students in my course at Columbia that I teach on conflict freedom, and then gave a TEDx talk about it, it turns out lots and lots of people have this exact same kind of thing. So basically, my mom and I would be really at each other's throats. And it was all about she wanted me to call her more often. And I just felt like my life is so crazy busy. I'm a working mother. I have two young children. I have a burgeoning career. I'm running around all the time. And she would just want me to drop everything and talk to her the moment that she called, or that's how it seemed to me. And so, of course, you know, we would just kind of get into these screaming matches where, you really? know, one of us would fling down the phone. <laughs> oh, no. That's how the book begins. And, you know, it would end with sometimes us not talking for a couple of days or eventually my father would intervene and call me and yeah. say, hey, you know, so not good. And eventually I just said, look, like we cannot continue like this. This is not yeah. going to work for me. And by using the practices that I write about in the book and the optimal outcomes method, I was able to free myself from this conflict with my mom. And we have a vastly different relationship today than we did at the time that was occurring. 
I think what's fascinating about that story, I think it's very relatable for a lot of people, but you obviously got stuck in some sort of pattern, right? Where she would call, want to talk with you for half an hour, you're busy. So every time you see your caller ID, you're probably like, should I answer Mm -hmm. it? Should I not? And if you do, that's probably where you're throwing down the phone. So you got into this like weird conflict loop, I think, as you call it. Mm -hmm. And how did you get in there in the first place? Was it just because you felt like she was stepping into your world and not being cognizant of the fact that you're really busy? Like, how did that all happen? And then what did that loop feel like? Right. Well, I talk about conflict patterns and Mm -hmm. conflict habits. So my mom and I share a conflict habit, which is blame and attack. Right. So I would experience her as calling me and blaming and attacking me. You should call me more often. What's wrong with you? You know, kind of pointing her finger at me or that's how I experienced it. So her habit, blame and attack. And not surprisingly, being her daughter, I have the exact same habit. So when I'm stuck in a recurring conflict, so I don't do this all the time, right? I'm not always blaming and attacking other people, but it's when we feel stuck, we rely, we fall back on these habits that we develop over a lifetime that then become very difficult to stop using. And we use them, you know, with good intentions. Sometimes, of course, we're not intending to blame and attack other people, but we might be intending to win a debate or win the conversation, win the argument, right? I wanted to prove to my mother that I really am so busy. And so like, she shouldn't have these expectations of me. So I would just attack right back. And when two people are blaming and attacking each other, it often <laughs> typically yeah, doesn't no, end nothing well. Nothing gets done, yeah. <laughs> you stay in the same pattern. Exactly. We're stuck. So when there's two habits that are interacting with each other, I call that a conflict pattern. We were stuck yeah. in this conflict pattern and it becomes increasingly hard to get out of that pattern. So that's why I talk about the work as freeing ourselves from conflict because the work is not to resolve anything, right? When you're blaming and attacking another person, and they're doing the same thing with you, the idea that you're going to suddenly resolve that, I mean, that's what my mom and I had tried to do for years was try to resolve this, my father would try to resolve it. But no matter what we did, it just kept rearing its head again, you know, sometimes it would take weeks, sometimes it would take months, but eventually it would come back up again, just depended on the circumstances or how maybe tired we were that day. Yeah. So the work is really to identify what is my conflict habit. So I named one of them, which is blame and attack. Another one is you might blame and shame yourself. So for some of us, if we see that we're stuck in a conflict, we might go into very negative self-talk. And we might be well-intentionally trying to make things better, fix the situation, fix ourselves, figure out what's wrong and make it better. But the end result, typically, if we do this in a habitual way, is that the Mm -hmm. conflict just keeps on going around and around, and we're sitting there kind of stewing in our own negative self-talk, which doesn't help anybody. A third habit is shutting down. So we might avoid (laughs) to the point where, you know, okay. (laughs) I'm kidding. Sometimes, not all the time. Good to know. (laughs) This is great to know about yourself. You are not alone, right? And the first step is acknowledging, you know, who am I and what's my habit? So shutting down sometimes can be helpful, but not in a habitual way, typically, because yeah. it just allows things to brew. And then counterintuitively, the fourth habit that I talk about in the book is relentlessly collaborate. So this is, you know, we've all been taught in this day and age in organizations in particular, collaboration is where it's at. That's how we need to show up. That's how we need to work with other people. And yet when we habitually 
try to collaborate with other people, even when they are unwilling to cooperate with us, it doesn't work. And so we could try to be resolving and resolving and resolving, and nothing is working. It's not happening. And so the sooner you can recognize that your habit of relentlessly collaborating with other people or trying to, that that's not working, then you have a chance to do what I call take pattern breaking action. Stop, pause, acknowledge this mm -hmm. is not working, how I'm doing this, and what else could I do instead? And I typically say, as long as what you do is constructive and different from what you have been doing in the past, it almost doesn't matter what you do. So there's a whole, you know, many, many, many different things that you can do, which are not going to be necessarily immediately apparent to you right now. But the first step is just to notice what's going on and commit that you're going to do something pattern breaking. And then there's lots of other parts. For people of listening, I'm that. sure that they've inevitably gone through some sort of conflict resolution training or listened to a podcast or read a book on it. I'm really curious what you believe are the biggest myths out there about, you know, like legacy conflict resolution tactics, because in mm -hmm. your book, you even specifically mentioned like people like, you know, Roger Fisher, who wrote Getting to Yes, and Bryce Patton, who wrote Difficult Conversations in you too, like you came kind of after them. They teach conflict resolution differently than experts that may have come before you guys. What's different about your approach compared to mm -hmm. people out there who you know, claim to be experts in conflict resolution, mm -hmm. be maybe not as effective. Yeah. So the people that you named, Roger Fisher and Bruce Patton, are giants in the field. <laughs> they were colleagues of mine. Roger Fisher is no longer with us in physical being. Yeah. But, you know, Bruce Patton continues to be a colleague and a friend to this day. I learned so much from them. And the work that I do, I couldn't do had it not been for the work that they did. Getting to yes and difficult conversations remain classics. They are great. Field, and they are super useful. I recommend them to people still all the time. I started my career teaching that those methodologies, and I still do often, right, when I'm coaching, when I'm training, when I'm teaching. So these are wonderful methodologies. And if people have, if listeners haven't picked up those books, they absolutely they should. They must. Yeah, I agree. Those are great books. Yes. I've read them both. So the way that Optimal Outcomes builds on their work and is different from their work is that Optimal Outcomes starts from the assumption that you are stuck. Mm -hmm. You have tried the getting to yes methodology. You have tried the seven elements of negotiation. You have tried doing separating impact versus intent, which is one of the key points in the Difficult Conversations book. You have tried these things. You have given it your best shot. You have tried them many, multiple times, and nothing you've done has worked. And when that is the case, trying again is not likely to free you, mm -hmm. is not likely to resolve the situation. And that's where the optimal outcomes method comes in. It offers you a different way based on psychological principles, based on a deeper understanding of emotions than perhaps we've had in the past five years of my own research and many, many years of research in conflict and negotiation theory and practice to say, how can we change our perspective? How can we use a mindful stance so I think about the optimal outcomes method as the 21st century answer to getting to yes and difficult conversations. This is for leaders who've grown up in a yeah. collaborative culture, right? Mm -hmm. In 1981, getting to yes was completely revolutionary yeah. because it was coming up again, you know, kind of saying, look, the pie is fixed. 
if I say <laughs> yes and you say no, you know, that's the end of it. Or if I win, you must lose. That's not the way it's going to work anymore. We have to create this collaborative mindset. We've now spent the last 40 years building that collaborative mindset in organizations, in leaders, in people all over the globe. And it's been tremendously successful much of the time. And there are still so many situations where it's not successful. Yeah. And this is the answer to that. A lot of people will talk about conflict resolution and, and talk about it as if it's really negative. But you even said that conflict can be a productive, you know, specific quote. Mm -hmm. Conflict can also be productive and lead to innovative solutions. And I agree with that statement. I think that as we engage in conflict, we can you know, learn other perspectives, come up with creative ideas and solutions. What's your perspective on that? Well, absolutely. So... Well, I hope people listening have had the experience where they've been in a conflict situation and they may have not even expected it, but something positive came out of that experience. Even if it was just, wow, I learned how I don't want to be, or I learned who I mm -hmm. do want to be with and who I don't want to be with or spend time with or work with or work for. But even beyond that, often when we're seeing something differently from someone else, you know, the research shows and my own experience bears out as well that people working in diverse teams tend to come up with solutions that are much more innovative, creative, productive than people who are working in homogeneous teams. So the research does back up what some of our, you know, sometimes our experience is, is that conflict can be healthy. And you know what the truth is, even if that weren't true. Conflict is unavoidable. Yeah. There is not a person on planet Earth <laughs> who doesn't at some point or another at home and at work and in public life experience some kind of conflict with someone else. We might experience it to varying degrees, but everyone experiences it in life. So I wouldn't want anyone to walk away from this conversation thinking that they're kind of going to get away scot-free. So given that it is a reality, then the question becomes, well, what do we do about it? And that's my life's work is answering that question. And that is what the eight practices in the Optimal Outcomes Method help walk you through. At first, it's about identifying what is my current habit? How do I tend to get stuck with other people? Looking at that, then asking, let's map out this conflict. Let's look at it from a much more complex point of view. Who are the players? It might seem like it's just me and you, but actually, if we're stuck, it probably involves more people than just the two of us. And so then the question is, how can we map this out and look at this from a, a wider angle lens? And just doing that, again, it's not particularly difficult, right? People can sometimes within you know five minutes create a little hand-drawn map on a piece of paper and have these light bulbs going off about, oh my gosh, yeah. it didn't ever occur to me that this other person is involved in such a way that you know either they're contributing in a way I didn't realize or they could be helpful in helping us get out of this situation. So lots of light bulbs can go off there. And then out from mapping, we can look at values and emotions and how those contribute to the situation. And then start looking to the future. Given our understanding of how we've gotten here, how can we imagine better future for ourselves? What do we want the future to look like? And imagining not just using our thinking brain but using all five of our senses and our emotions to imagine what would we like to see happen. So often in conflict situations, we're so, so stuck. It's just so magnetizing to stay looking just at what's going wrong. It doesn't occur to us to ask ourselves, what would mm -hmm. I like to happen here? Like, what would an ideal situation yeah. be like? So I always advise, use your five senses. What would it feel like? 
What would it look like? What would it sound like? What would it even taste or smell like to be in that future state? What would it feel like emotionally to be there? That's what I'm shooting for. And then, but we don't want to stop there because if you stop there, you may not ever get there, (laughs) right? So you want to build a set of action steps that you can take that are simple, maybe even surprisingly different that are going to get you towards that future state. And you want to think ahead, right? So what are things that could get in my way to achieving that future state? And how can I prevent and mitigate those from happening? You know what I love about your book that I think is different from so much other content that's around conflict resolution is the fact that, you know, others will probably teach you how to use tactics to resolve conflict. Whereas yours really looks at it holistically with what do you want as the optimal outcome? I think that's a good way to frame it up because, you know, what's the ideal future? And when you look at the players involved and all the emotions that are happening, like how do we like kind of step back, map it all out and then get out of this loop as you suggest? I love Mm -hmm. that approach. How did that come to you? That's a great question. The whole methodology is based on my research into wisdom. So I spent five years in graduate school studying how people get stuck in long-term conflict. At the end of those five years, I realized I could, and many people do, academics in particular, I could spend my entire life just looking at the complex causes of recurring conflict. And I would never have anything to say about how do we get out of it. So I decided in that moment to change that for myself. And I started looking at the wisdom literature. This was back in 2007 when, you know, the idea of yoga and meditation was just really beginning to blossom in the West after many years of being here anyway. But so I started looking at the wisdom literature, looking at people like Nelson Mandela, Martin Luther King Jr., Gandhi. How did they respond to conflict and how was that different and how is it wise? What does it mean to be a wise person? So the practices in the outcomes method are all based on qualities that wise people mm-hmm. are shown to have. And this is both based on the research on wisdom and also obviously on my own experience. So I've been working with people in organizations for 20 years and I've been teaching for a decade in graduate school at Columbia University. And so based on my own experience, as well as what the literature on wisdom had to say, I thought, you know what? So that's why in the book, the main example that I used to talk about what does it look like to imagine a different future? What is it like to imagine a different future? I used the example of Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech. Because most people hear that speech and we're taught, or at least I was taught in grade school, you know, the one reason why this speech was so successful is that Mm -hmm. he repeats, I have a dream, I have a dream, I have a dream. And it's a very effective oratorical, you know, thing to do. But when you really listen to what he says, he's painting a picture. He's helping us imagine the future that he wants for us. So he's saying words like, you know, little black girls and little white girls holding hands. And so we envision those hands being held and he's contrasting that to where we are now, where we're stuck. And it's it's just an amazing visual, imaginative Mm -hmm. journey that he takes us on. So anyone interested should go and listen to that and watch the speech online. That's a good lead into what I wanted to ask you next. And I don't know if you get this question a lot, but let's take the Martin Luther King example. What if somebody's optimal outcome, their ideal future state, the picture he's painting for everybody, what if others don't align with that? So let's say I'm in a conflict with somebody. Mm-hmm. My ideal future is 
it right. does not align with theirs. And so the conflict still exists. Is it a lost yes. cause? Where do we go from there? Yes. That's why the book is called <laughs> Optimal Outcomes. And so I define optimal. And that's also why there's not just one main practice in the book. Yeah, good point. But there are eight because the other eight are a balance to the imagining a future. What I mean by that, so let me first define what is an optimal outcome. It's one that both maximizes your vision or your imagination of an ideal future. And it also maximizes reality. It takes into account the reality of the people that you're dealing with and the situational constraints that you're under. You know, I think working on both of those axes, so if you think about them as one is on the x-axis and one is on the y-axis and you're kind of going for the top of the corner of that graph, you want to maximize both of those. You want to optimize for both of those. And I think they're both equally as difficult as each other, right? We often wish, like, what's the one thing people really want in conflict? We just wish it would go away. <laughs> we want it to be done. We're just like magic wand. I don't know. Just some just people like, like drama. So maybe they like being in a state of conflict <laughs> all the time. And I'm not one of those people. In fact, I've never had maybe. conflict. Ever. No, that's a great point. <laughs> well, that's a great point. And that what you just said confirms what you said about that you think your habit is to avoid because right because people who would like <laughs> drama might not avoid it they would kind of go after it with gusto They'd lean in yeah exactly. exactly maybe some of us more than others most of us want it to just disappear and go away and one of the best things we can do is notice when we're wishing that and ask ourselves what is the reality i'm dealing with who am i dealing with what may be going on for them that i don't know anything about and acknowledging that can help us, again, create pattern-breaking action. Let's try doing something different. If I've been pushing and pushing and pushing and it's just not working, what else could I do given the reality of the fact that this person is just having mm -hmm. none of it? Like, they're just not going to do what I'm asking them to do. So I hope that, does that answer your question? Oh, totally, yeah. There's something I wanted to touch on, and I'm totally jumping around, but I thought it was so fascinating. There's a couple tables, and I think you use a couple examples of conflict, and then you looked at the ideal future, which is collaborate, staying in conflict, do nothing, walk away alternative, which would be probably taking action in, in an alternative way. And then you had a cost-benefit analysis, and you basically filled out this table. How could people use something like that? when they're dealing with some conflict, is it a healthy exercise to do something like that where it's kind of essentially a pros cons list looking at the benefit to taking action in a certain way? What do you think about that? Yes, absolutely. And in fact, if listeners go to the optimaloutcomesbook.com website, there are resources. Mm. So if you click on the tab that says resources, you'll see eight or I think it may be even nine or 10 different resources and the one that you're talking about is called the Reckoning yeah. resource. And it's a blank template that you can fill out. And when you have the book, you will see a completed version of that template. So you have a sense of what the story in the book is all about. It's about, there are two, actually two different examples of the Reckoning template in the book. One about Bob and Sally, who's a seat, Bob is the CEO and Sally is his head of sales. And then there's another one about Roxanne, and she's dealing with conflict on her senior team of a few other SVPs at a healthcare company. And so 
you can download the blank template and use it for yourself. And the whole purpose is absolutely because it will help you to evaluate your options so often. And the reason why it's in the book is because my experience teaching, particularly teaching the getting to yes method, is that we would ask people early in my career, I would ask people, well, what's better for you? Do you want to walk away and do something different? Or is it better for you to make a deal with this person who you're sitting face to face with? And so some, the problem is sometimes when we're stuck in conflict, we're not choosing. <laughs> we're kind of saying that we're fantasizing about walking away, but we're not doing that. For example, if I'm in conflict with my boss, I might be fantasizing about quitting and finding another job, but I'm just working in such a ragged, crazy, around-the-clock way. I'm not even spending any time fixing up my resume or going onto LinkedIn or talking to people in other companies. So I'm fantasizing about that. And so I'm just stuck. I'm doing nothing. <laughs> I'm staying stuck in conflict. So the reckoning template has a column in there that says, stay in conflict. And I want us to all recognize when we are making that choice. Because I've seen way too many really smart, <laughs> highly intelligent people stay stuck in conflict without realizing that that's what they're doing. So the template that you're talking about, the reckoning template helps you see in black and white, and you're the one filling it out, what are the benefits of doing each of these? And what are the costs that I'm paying? So if I fill this out, and I notice that I'm paying a ton of costs for staying stuck in conflict, and I might pay equally as bad costs if I try to keep banging my head against the wall trying to collaborate with my boss and it's just not working. I might notice that walking away is going to have fewer costs and more benefits than at each of these other two, either stay in conflict or continuing to collaborate with my boss. So it just helps us really become clear about what it is that we're doing and the costs that we're paying. And then, you know, if we see that we're paying a lot of costs for staying stuck or trying to collaborate, and we choose that that's what we want to do, fine. <laughs> but at least I want us all to be aware that those are the costs we're paying and make that choice consciously instead of making it unconsciously while fantasizing about other things that we never actually pursue. I'm always fascinated by why we get into conflict in the first place. And you had a section in your book that like I had like an aha moment. You basically like outlined how we interpret behaviors and why people do things that they do and which could enter into conflict uh, from our vantage point. And then you outlined their possible shadow values. Explain what shadow values are. Maybe give us a couple examples. Because honestly, I never really heard of it this way. But it makes such sense. Like we look at things a certain way and we think we're right the way we're interpreting it. But it's maybe from somebody else's vantage point, it's not at all the reality. Yeah. So in organizations today, many of us have gone through exercises where we're asked to identify what are our values, or we may even be told or we may be asked to participate in identifying what are our organization's values or what are our team's values. And that's a great exercise to do. I call those ideal values. Those are things we care about in life that we're proud to say we care about. In contrast to ideal values are shadow values. These are things we really care about in life that we're not proud to admit to anyone that we care about. And in fact, we won't even admit these shadow values to ourselves. We push them down into the shadow. This is a kind of reference nod to Carl Jung, 
who talked about the shadow self and the ego and contrasted them. So these shadow values run our lives without us realizing it. And as you can imagine, if you and I, for example, are having disagreement or we're stuck in a conflict and my behavior is being run by a shadow value, for example, if what I really care about is being recognized for my achievements and I'm not willing to admit that even to myself because I've been taught to have a value of modesty and modesty <laughs> and humility might even be an ideal value of mine, right? So I walk around thinking about myself that my identity is I'm someone who has modest and has humility, and yet I'm being driven by this need for recognition. You can imagine, right? You and I are built the same, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> Unless you just pulled that example out of nowhere, and that's not really true. Right. But that is me to a T. Well, <laughs> again, I think this is one that is so universal, maybe even particularly in Western culture, right? That, you know, people want to be recognized for what they've done. Very often, we don't all share shadow value. And in fact, one really interesting thing that I noticed early on in teaching this methodology, so I have students come and anonymously write all of their shadow values on one big flip chart and write all of our ideal values on a different flip chart. And then we'd stand back and look at what are the patterns across these two flip charts. And we'd notice that a lot of the same values are on both flip chart pages. And that's because what's an ideal value for me might be a shadow value for you and vice versa, right? So and it can depend on upbringing, culture, religious background, organizational culture, you name it. You know, there's so many different factors that influence how we develop both our ideal values and our shadow values. So if I grew up in a family that I was taught humility is where it's at, which trust me, so many people that I've worked with, advised, coached, have really star achievers, have many of them. It turns out people are taught, you know, it's good to have humility. And so in any case, it depends on how you were mm -hmm. raised and the kinds of messages you got when you were growing up. So just the ability for us to recognize our own shadow values can drastically reduce the amount of conflict that we're experiencing in a situation when we can recognize, wow, I have been wanting recognition and I wasn't even acknowledging that to myself. Now that I am, I wonder how could I honor that? Sometimes it might only be necessary to honor that within myself, in my thoughts. I don't even need to speak that or act that in any necessarily specific way. Another way that shadow values can be helpful is we can take our best guess at what other people's shadow values might be. There's a lot of risks in doing this because, of course, if someone else can't acknowledge for themselves that they care about a certain thing, it's impossible to ask them, right? You can't walk up to someone and say, what are your shadow values? Because they have no idea at a conscious level, <laughs> unless they've also done this work. So that can be the power also of having someone do this work along with you, is that if you're both identifying, hmm, what might my shadow values be, then you actually could potentially have a conversation about it. But it's not necessary. The beauty of identifying shadow values is that it's not even necessary to talk about shadow values. What is necessary is to acknowledge what yours might be, and also to take a best guess at what someone else's might be. It gives you so much empathy for them. So when I acknowledge that, wow, my mom might have a shadow value of love, that she was expressing her love by asking me to call her more often, and she couldn't just come right out and say, oh, I want I you to call too. me because uh, I love you, because yeah. that's not how she grew up, right? That's not 1950s Brooklyn. So she was doing it in a way 
where love is kind of a shadow value for her. And she even recently said to me, you know, I think (laughs) my shadow value might be love and family. And I said, "Mm." (laughs) I thought that maybe too. So these can open up all kinds of ahas and insights that are not possible before. So talking about them is probably pretty helpful because most people can't read minds. So we wouldn't know what their shadow value is. So yeah, opening up the doors. I like that. Right. That's good. Yes. But I want to clarify, Mm -hmm. it's not necessary to talk about shadow values. And in some cases, it's not necessarily even advisable. It could make things worse. So some of this work, you do need to use your best judgment about what you think is going to either free you from conflict or not. And, you know, the whole book and all the whole methodology is all about keeping the focus on the goal is to free myself and ideally others too, but at least at a minimum to free myself from conflict. It's not to be right. It's not to win the argument. It's to free myself from the pattern I've gotten locked in with this other person or people. And when we have that as a goal, we might realize, gosh, I don't even need to talk about shadow values with someone else. It might inflame them more. All I need to know is I've gotten some empathy for them. I'm going to stop pushing them in the way that I have been, or I'm going to stop doing X, Y, Z. I mean, the focus of all of this work is really on ourselves. We have the power within us already, always, to free ourselves. We don't need anyone else's agreement, help, conversation. We really don't. That's also how this methodology differs from getting to yes or difficult conversations, is that the focus is really on the locus of control, which is with ourselves, inside of ourselves. I love it. Jen, if somebody picks up Optimal Outcomes today, how should they read it to get the most out of it? Is there a particular way in which you suggest people read it, go through certain sections, take a lot of notes, go through the exercises? What do you think? That's a great question. I would say read it ideally as a whole picture in its entirety. Or at least skim it in its entirety. Like think of an example, at least. Do you think like coming with like, oh, and here's a conflict example that I had and then go through the book that way with that in mind? Would that work? Oh, yes. Okay. <laughs> yes. And I don't mean everybody has to read they every should. single they word should. of the yeah. book, although, of course, you know, that would be lovely. <laughs> but I mean, if you pick out one chapter, as I said, some of the chapters are balanced by other chapters. So you're going to be missing the balance. So just like take a bird's eye view of the whole thing. But absolutely, end of the very first chapter of the book, I ask you, before you even continue reading, think of a situation in your own life that you could apply. And I give you some criteria for what kind of situation to choose so that you'll get the most out of the book. Awesome. So you should definitely do that. Jen, it's been great having you on the podcast. I kept you a little long, almost at 40 minutes today, but really appreciate you coming on to talk about your book, Optimal Outcomes. It's out today. So I encourage people to go get it. Where can people either find the book? I assume Amazon and some other places, but where can they find the book? Learn more about you and anything else that you're up to. The best place to go is optimaloutcomesbook.com. And there you'll find all the resources that we talked about. So templates galore, if you're someone who likes to fill out stuff and make it your own, you have lots (laughs) and lots there. Trust me. And then there are also (laughs) two assessments. So these are very short seven minute quizzes. You know, these quizzes take about seven minutes to complete. One on emotion traps. So helping you identify what kind of emotion trap do you tend to fall in? And the other on 
the conflict habits that we were talking about, those four conflict habits, to help you identify which one is yours. And the fun thing is at the end of the survey, you can have the option to email a friend so that they can take it too, and then you can compare notes and see how you've gotten stuck. So, you know, great thing to do with teams, with spouses, with family members. You'll find all of that at optimaloutcomesbook.com. Awesome. Jen, thanks for coming on the podcast. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Brandon. Great to talk with you. 